Good evening. Today is August 16th, 2023. I'm Derek Fildebrandt, publisher of the Western Standard, and you're watching The Pipeline. I'm joined, as always, by Western Standard opinion editor, Nigel Hannaford. How are you, Nigel? Good to be here. We've also got Western Standard senior Alberta columnist, Corey Morgan. You had a good show earlier today, eh? I did. I did. Yeah, Dan McTeague on there. He's always a, a good conversation to have. He is. He is. Uh, all right. Well, today we're going to be talking about... I think it's not a new thing, but it's flaring up to new levels. The Ottawa, uh, the war between Ottawa and the West over energy and electricity. Ottawa trying to uh, force its way into provincial control over the electricity grid in a very aggressive way. And Alberta Premier Danielle Smith and Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe hitting back hard. Also, uh, kind of a sort of an exclusive scoop from the Western Standard. Rachel, a senior source in the NDP in Alberta, says Rachel Notley will be retiring this fall uh, as leader of her party, making way for an interim leader to oversee the leadership election. So we're going we're gonna to talk about Rachel Notley's pending, maybe, retirement. And uh, Ottawa's ban on usable compostable bags. Those of you outside of Alberta might not know what I'm talking about. You know, Ottawa's banning uh, single-use plastic bags uh, coming this December uh, in Alberta, uh, at Safeway and some other places. Uh, we get these nice plastic, they feel like plastic. They're almost as good as plastic, but they're completely compostable. Nine, says Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo. He says, uh, there shall not be uh, compostable bags that are usable, that are enjoyable to use at the grocery store. We're going to ban them verboten. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. Before we get into it, though, as usual, we've got to thank my favorite sponsor, the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Canadian Sporting <coughs> Association is Canada's leading <clears throat> firearms right uh, advocacy group uh, in Canada. Uh, they are on the front lines making sure, standing up for firearms owners in Canada, that you can still buy, safely, and responsibly use firearms in Canada. Without the CSSA, the federal government would have taken the last of our, they'd be leaving us with nothing but BB guns and kids' bows and arrows by uh, by this point without the CSSA, uh, because it's so important for gun owners to stand together. So if you're not yet a member of the CSSA, go to cssa-cila.org or do what I do, just Google them and become a member today. Uh, actually, while you're at it, since the federal government has been in the business of getting uh, media censored off of Facebook and Google, it's a lot harder for a lot of you to get a hold of our news content. Make sure you go to westernstandard.news. At the very least, sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get a blast of our uh, headlines in the morning with all the top stories. Uh, but you'll be limited to five ones for free. After that, you got to become a member. It's only uh, $10 a month or $100 a year to support uh, the West's leading independent uh, media organization. All right, let's get into it. So uh, it's been coming for some time. It actually kind of popped up during the Alberta election in May. Rachel Notley saying she is going to make, uh, she's going to green the electricity grid by 2035, net zero, no more carbon, et cetera, et cetera. There was a big blow up over that because it was so expensive. And that was a fairly big moment uh, that turned out many Albertans, at least, against the NDP. Albertans looked at the price tag on that and said, no, no, we're not doing that. That's pretty crazy for Alberta. Uh, but uh, Ottawa, which is uh, has very little 
Albert has very little impact on the decisions of Ottawa says we're going 2035 and uh, the provinces, uh, you have to come along with it. Well, enter Danielle Smith and Scott Moe and they said, they hold up this little document called the constitution says, well, energy is under exclusive provincial jurisdiction. Now we've heard that before and it hasn't stopped Ottawa from butting its way in and the liberal packed Supreme court generally uh, does its duty, lays back and think of England and does what uh, the federal government says. Um, but we've got a big war now brewing over this. Uh, Danielle Smith saying she, um, uh, intimating that she might even invoke the Emergencies Act, uh, sorry, Emergencies Act the Sovereignty Act over this, um, that uh, Alberta will just, if it has to, will go completely alone, pull out of any federal uh, regi regulatory regime around uh, the electricity grid. Um, but it's blowing up pretty big. Uh, naturally, I know you had a column on this, I think, just yesterday. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know. Uh, how strong is Alberta's hand in this? Because at the end of the day, the Supreme Court's probably just going to do Ottawa's bidding. Well, first of all, you're correct that the Supreme Court will almost certainly do, uh, do the uh, government's bidding, not because they will be told to, but because they just know what the right thing to do is. All these people have been appointed by the federal government, and uh, they're not going to upset the apple cart. I asked Danielle Smith at her press conference what legally could be done. This was yesterday. Her answer was, we will see. It is uncharted territory. Strictly speaking, when she produced Section 92 of the Constitution, she clearly anticipated the question, and she was right. Well, I just happened to have it right here, and it says... It's, it's, a, it's a provincial responsibility. In fact, it says development, conservation, and management. Here, here, I'm going to read the Constitution <laughs> to you. Uh, Bear with us, folks. For, for the generation and production of electrical energy. That is a provincial thing. How will the, um, how will the uh, courts get around it? They will probably buy the Gilbo argument that because carbon dioxide is pollution, and the federal government has appropriated pollution to itself as an area of interest, well, then that overrides the Constitution. Now, obviously, arguing that carbon dioxide is pollution is just a trick. It is plant food. We would die without carbon dioxide. Plants would die. Plants produce oxygen. You know, it goes, anybody who's done grade 10 biology knows that carbon dioxide is not pollution. But what's the Supreme Court convince themselves that it is? Because the federal government says so. Uh, Corey, I think this, I think, will go, uh, as as Nigel was hinting there, to the carbon tax decision, where it says, uh, yes, well, uh, energy and whatnot is provincial, but the federal government has a right to regulate for pollution as it would go across provincial boundaries. And global warming is a global issue. Um, and at the time, we we all saw that that was a, well, that was a hole blown through the Constitution you could drive a truck through. Uh, Trojan hearts, use, use your metaphor as you see fit. Um, but I, I would expect that is what Ottawa is banking on, uh, that Supreme Court decision completely upending uh, decades of constitutional precedent, allowing the federal government directly into energy. I uh, would you expect that's probably where the federal government's going to go now, that because it's global warming, 
anything you could possibly connect to global warming is therefore under federal control. And I can't think of very much now that the federal government doesn't say is global warming. Yeah, I, I don't see any other way they would rule on this. So it's an exercise in futility. At best, it's you know foot dragging to go through the court system. But you got to go through the motions. You got to use the legal tools at your disposal. So, I mean, as I said earlier, it's like a slow motion battle, though it's going to be heated. Because it's going to take a while to get to that point, though, of a Supreme Court ruling. We might not have the same government in power by the time that happens. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, some of the tactic on the part of uh, Premier Smith could be just, if we can drag this out, you know, we'll have somebody more receptive in power by the time the courts ever actually rule on this. But there's not going to be any legal recourse for the province within the existing uh, structures to to, to counter this. Uh, This is a standoff, and I, you know... You know where I'd want to go with it, but uh, I don't anticipate Premier Smith going that way. Well, Premier Smith has pretty much said she will refuse to go along. Uh, she even said Gilbo can pound sand, which I'm not sure if that was a play on words with oil sands, but if so, I mean, all the better. Um, but refuse. Let's talk about what would refusing look like? Because even if the federal government, uh, sorry, if the Supreme Court were to rule that Ottawa has the power to regulate Alberta's provincial energy grid, which... It's just bizarre saying out loud, but I have very little faith the Supreme Court would uh, rule in anything other than further centralized federal power. Um, they can't physically make Alberta, I, I suppose maybe they, they could force Alberta to shut down its energy production, natural gas, oil, things like that, but they can't force us to start building solar panels and windmills over or uh, wind generator uh, turbines over farmers' fields. They can't really force us to do it. They might agree that Ottawa has a right to tell us what to do, but they can't really make us do anything, Nigel. No, they can't force us to do that. But they can force the closure of the natural gas plants that we have, and then we're stuck with the problem of, well, what do we do now? We don't want the lights to go off. We don't want the heat to fail. Uh, we need power. Uh, that opens, a whole, it's a question of timing as much as anything else. By 2035, can you imagine that anybody, even if they made the decision today to get a nuclear plant built uh, in, in 12 years, the permits, the environmental impact studies, the deliberately intense considerations, it really isn't possible. So this is the real danger here that we could find ourselves, after decades of energy security, facing life with brownouts, mm-hmm. even blackouts. Very dangerous in a, in a prairie province where temperatures fall and we have more hours of darkness than daylight. This is what Smith is so very, very adamant about, is that we have energy security is actually the most important thing. It's bizarre that Alberta, the most energy-rich jurisdiction in all of the Western Hemisphere, except for possibly Venezuela, which doesn't manage to do very well with it. Okay, actually, yeah, let's say the two most energy-rich jurisdictions in North and South America will become possibly the two biggest energy basket cases, that Alberta, with third largest proven oil reserves on the planet, we could be facing brownouts and blackouts by 2035 if this happens. There's just no way we could do it. And even if we wanted to, tr- we tried really aggressively to do it, and we were willing to spend 
hundreds of billions of dollars that are projected to be required to do this in that time, still probably wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, we'd be just bizarre that we're exporting oil for energy, but we just wouldn't even be able to keep the lights on right here. The office towers, headquartering energy companies wouldn't have energy. Well, we have a bizarre, ideological, and unreasonable environment minister. I mean, he is probably the most you know, extreme-leaning person we've ever seen in that position. I think he's very well aware that we can't do it. I mean, the numbers are very easy to find when you start looking. Alberta has 80% of its generation is based on fossil fuels right now. Even if wholeheartedly Premier Smith wanted to pursue that transition that he's demanding, I, I, it would be impossible. It's Nigel, as Nigel said, we couldn't get the nuke plants fast enough. We couldn't get the other uh, sources of energy. And when the political play comes into it, this isn't a big burden for Ontario and Quebec. They've got all sorts of hydroelectric and nuclear power. So this is the usual East versus West. And we'll get painted as the intransigent boogeymen who have messed up Canada's environmental policy. Mm -hmm. I don't think they care that we're going to have brownouts and blackouts. So what's really ironic here, Derek, is that you said earlier, and you were correct, that when it becomes uh, a matter of pollution, well, this suddenly borders don't matter. It, we've got to look after it because it's all one. They don't use that logic when they say, oh, no, 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 you can't. If you export natural gas to a country that it will then retire or not build coal-generated, genera coal-electrical generation, Oh, it's, it's it's not a it's not a global issue then. Oh no, we've got we've got to do it right here in this country. Get our own down. So much of this could be solved if, by exporting natural gas, Alberta was able to build up the carbon credits to satisfy the demands of a net zero carbon policy. Surely, you're not suggesting that the eco fanatics might be a bit hypocritical. I am suggesting that uh, there may be more going on here than just. Uh, the, so, so there's an interesting bright side here. Um, there's not much of a carrot offered to Alberta, mm -hmm. but now they're trying stick. Gilbo has threatened that if Alberta doesn't fall in line and do what we say, we're going to withdraw the green subsidies from Alberta. We're going to stop federal subsidies to uh, wind turbine generators and uh, solar panels, build, you know, building stuff like that. To which Alberta should say, okay, <laughs> we don't want them for the most part. Like uh, the, the voters in Alberta who generally really want this stuff, they live in downtown cores and they don't have to live with wind turbines on top of the roofs of their high rises. They don't have to have look out and uh, see their previously pristine country landscape polluted by solar panels for mile after mile after mile. Uh, Alberta just put a moratorium on this stuff for six months. And Ottawa's response is to say, we'll just give you less money to build things that you don't really want anyway. It, it's bizarre. Uh, Corey, is that supposed to be a carrot or a stick? Or like, what's what's the reasoning? Well, I, I'm not seeing how that's a threat that we care about. Uh, well, it will put pressure on because, I mean, you know, the opposition here will say, look at the jobs lost because of the intransigent, look at the money being thrown away. I mean, they love doing that when Ottawa dangles our own money at us. If mm -hmm. a provincial or even municipal government turns their back on it, people act as if, well, that means the money's been thrown into a pot and burned or something. You know, it's just not been used, so it doesn't exist. So that will put pressure on the government. As you said, it's city people who don't realize the impact of that, but they will still be speaking up. 
but it starts the stage. I mean, if it gets really bad, if this battle really starts happening, if the premier is really saying she's not going to comply, that's when I can see the government starting to reduce other transfers. They've always used that as a mean to punish, means to punish Alberta. When they don't like our health care policies, they cut our health care transfers. We have this system where we, you know, our money is taxed. It goes to Ottawa and they pick and choose how much we're going to get back for specific programs. They have a lot of leverage on us. And I think that transfer for the green energy could just be the first one if they really want to start putting the screws to us. And it could get pretty ugly. Nigel, uh, on the, I'm not sure if they'd touch, like they are clawing back health uh, transfers already a little bit because uh, a few dozen people in Alberta dare pay out of their own pocket for health care. But they can't really tie the two together. That would The Canada Health Act says like under what circumstances they can claw back. And they're, it's stupid that that exists to begin with. But... I don't think they can really go after the health and social transfers on this, but they can withdraw the green subsidies if we don't comply. I can't. Is that a serious threat? Like, why should Albertans care if Albert if the Ottawa stops giving us back some of our money to build solar panels? If you're going to put a moratorium on development for these things, probably not. At least not for six months. But this, is, if there was any appetite to actually settle, as opposed to just grind Alberta then this business of allowing carbon credits for natural gas that's exported to be credited against Alberta's uh, carbon dioxide emissions, that is the door that could be opened. So, Corey, you talked about Smith trying, thinking maybe she could just wait out Trudeau and Gilbo. Uh, Polyev government, I think, would be highly unlikely to first of all, want to impose this to begin with, and also second, to so nakedly intrude into what is, at least according to the Constitution, crystal clear provincial jurisdiction, regardless of how Trudeau's Supreme Court might rule. Um, what's the danger of waiting out? Because a, a lot of times, you know, bureaucrats will try to wait out a minister they don't like, or uh, provinces wait out feds they don't like. Um, I mean... It's the investment chill. I mean, who's going to build a gas-fired plant? Alberta's got the only deregulated industry in Canada, actually, with private operators building that infrastructure and putting it into the grid. And those have lives. We need to keep building new ones and turning them over. But when it's in the air, I mean, part of Gilbo's policy talked about what we will allow the plant eventually to generate uh, as like a backup for 420 hours a year or something. Like, that. like nobody, that. nobody's going to invest in that. And, and when everything's in limbo, if it's in limbo for two years, those companies aren't going to be committing those dollars to that sort of generation infrastructure. So not only would the solar and wind not be getting built, I suspect uh, gas-fired plants and, and other conventional energy products projects are all kind of being on hold as well. And, and that could leave us with a real bad energy deficit. Um, let's, maybe let's talk about the political danger of trying to wait out Trudeau and Gilbo. There's no guarantee that Pierre Polyev is going to be prime minister in two years. Uh, we've had several, you know, Jason Kenney tried to wait out Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau waited out him. Uh, although I think he got something more difficult even than Kenney. This morning. But uh, the idea of waiting out the federal government, sometimes it works out, but yeah, it hasn't worked, hasn't worked for quite a while so far. Uh, what would be the political danger in Smith just trying to wait Trudeau out on this that you know, maybe we just get further behind the eight ball if Trudeau manages to hang on to power? Well, it would be the, the political risk is exactly what you just said. If uh, if he manages to win the next election, there goes that strategy. 
But there's actually a further political risk, even if uh, Mr. Bonnevere wins, and that is uh, th this policy is very popular in Alberta, but it's not very popular back in eastern Canada. Uh, they don't particularly care about our, uh, our, our energy needs, and they don't particularly like oil. It would seem they all drive cars, but they don't particularly like the uh, like oil, and they've got nuclear, so they can afford to be very they can afford to be very uh, holier than thou it's about it. So true, but what will Pierre have to give away in Quebec to get elected? Perhaps, but Trudeau has nothing to lose by angering Albertans. That like, is also true. He's, there's, there's virtually nothing to lose. He's got, like, what, two seats? Two seats. None two, in Saskatchewan. Yeah, two seats in Alberta, zero in Saskatchewan. And the two seats they have are very urban, you know, not even very center in Alberta. They're on the left side. Um, it, Trudeau has nothing to lose politically in Alberta. Polyev does. Now, not that conservatives federally have a very good record of helping Alberta out, but the expectation of conservatives of their federal representatives from Alberta tends to be, I think, screw us less bad than the other guys. You don't necessarily need to help us out, but you need to leave us alone. Don't make anything worse than it is. So I don't know. I, yeah, Polyev is going to have a lot of pressure to try and buy off votes in the East, but on something this direct to Alberta, I have a feeling that he, he probably comes down on the side of, I don't know, no blackouts and brownouts. I, I think he probably would. And, and some of the Atlantic, let's let's not forget, some of the Atlantic provinces, uh, two of the Atlantic provinces, I think. Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Both yeah. are, huh? they're, they're both fighting this as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, speaking of waiting out, Rachel Notley. Um, so Rachel Notley uh, obviously lost the last election. I think she's done five terms now as an MLA. So she's uh, she's the dean of the uh, of the Alberta legislature. She's the longest serving MLA. Uh, led the party now through three elections as leader. First time winning as premier, losing in 2019, then to Jason Kenney, losing in 2023 to Danielle Smith. Um, speculation on her retirement began the minute the election was called in uh, at the end of May. There. It, it's unusual for a leader who's been defeated in an election to contest another. Um, she's now contested two losing elections. Um, so the fact that she stuck around for 2023 was surprising to a lot, but she has the very solid respect of her party. Um, but I, uh, you know, I started hearing some little whispers and I decided I'm going to I've got one pretty good source, a very high-ranking source in the NDP. And so I, I call this source up there and say, here's what I'm hearing. I hear Rachel Notley is going to retire this fall. What can you tell me? So let's call this source Roger. So I, I, I put out a column on this uh, yesterday. Uh, so this person is not saying this is 100% what's happening, but this is kind of the plan around the office. So after the, uh, the election at the NMA, the contracts for most of Notley's staff were set to expire in October and November so that they would expire when she retires. The idea is that Rachel Notley will retire at that time uh, as the leader of the party, not as an MLA, but retire as leader of the party to allow an interim leader to take over. And that interim leader will see the party through the leadership race. That's, um, I know this is not set in stone, but it is a senior source saying that is that's the way things are going. She wants to do that largely so that she can avoid even the appearance 
of favoritism or interference in the leadership race. Um, but Nigel, it's a bit unusual though for a leader who's not being kicked out the door um, immediately after losing power. Uh, no, Rachel uh, Stephen Harper wasn't kicked out the door. The party still liked him. He could have stayed on uh, as they selected his uh, successor, but he, he just wanted to be done. He had just lost the election. He was leaving. Rachel Notley, though, stuck around for a full four years after losing an election. This is a bit of an odd way to do it, though, for a leader who's not being chased out with their tail between their legs by their own party. To the point about Rachel Notley staying on for four years, even after she lost, she was still the best they had. Mm -hmm. I would say that's probably the case today. And there aren't plenty of precedents, if you go back a, a few decades, for people just staying. Mackenzie King, Laurier, John A. <coughs> a few decades. McDonald. You're going back over a century for this well, kind of... Well, Mackenzie King... You're dating yourself if you say that's a few decades. Uh, Mackenzie King was not a, not 100 years. Mackenzie King uh, no, saw through the... He's through closer the, to 100 years than a few decades. Never mind. The fact is, there is, <laughs> there is precedence for people staying on. If you want a more current one, another one who stayed on a little too long, Joe Clark. But, you know, it's... Uh, there's not many modern examples now. You Generally, you get one election. Yep. If you don't win, you get kicked out. Actually, in Alberta, if you win and you're conservative, you still get kicked out. She, but she, but she, anyway, broke that trend and could continue to break it if she wanted. Yeah. There's a great deal of affection within that party, misplaced as it might be and wrong in the head as they most certainly are to a single person. Nevertheless, they like Rachel Notley, and she was by no means the, the worst that they could have offered to the mm -hmm. voters. And if you are correct, and if your source is, uh, is uh, informed you accurately, we shall see within a few months just what the NDP can produce in the absence of Rachel Motley. There's nothing that, it's, it's only going to improve Danielle Smith's chances the next time around. Uh, Corey, this is, un it's not unprecedented, but generally um, even leaders being shown the door by their party sometimes managed to stick around. Uh, Jason Kenney turfed by his own, you know, they rigged, in a rigged leadership race, he got 51%. Clearly couldn't stay, had to step down, but he didn't step down for an interim leader. Uh, they had quite a fight in the caucus over that. Many wanted him gone, have an interim leader, an interim premier. Uh, but Allison Redford, they had an interim premier, uh, Dave Hancock. Uh, but interim leaders are even more common in opposition because you don't have to turn over the whole machinery of government. It's just really the party caucus and some party apparatus a little bit. Uh, so opposition parties that have lost an election and the leader is going, all, the vast majority of the time, at least in modern Canadian political history, you get an interim leader. Uh, but popular ones, she did lose an election. But, I mean, for the NDP, she did pretty damn good for the NDP. Uh, is this surprising to you that, uh, at least according to the, the source in the NDP, that she is likely to outright step down as a leader and have uh, have an interim leader come in uh, as her replacement's elected? I, I can believe it. it. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, Rachel Notley's really done her time. As you said, she's been in the legislature for a great deal of time. It was a very small rump of a party when she got on board. When she was, actually, it was uh, two ML, she was one of two MLAs. Her and which Raj Panu, or yeah. No, her and uh, Brian Mason. Brian Mason, yeah. So a little part Raj Panu was before With that. Uh, Pam Barrett, yeah. So, I mean, a two-party caucus up to forming government, uh, putting a you know a, a term in as such, and then another term as leader of the opposition. Nobody can say 
she didn't put in everything she could and, and didn't make a mark on the province. Uh, she had, you know, a, a career to be celebrated as far as those who like the NDP go. Uh, anything longer at this point is sort of dragging it out. I mean, the only hope she could have of winning the next election if she stayed would be, which is possible, I guess, if the UCP implodes. If the circumstances are the same after four more years, the outcome is going to be the same. And does she really want to put in now four more years as an opposition leader? She yeah. just, she's tired. Uh, but she loves her party. A lot of people love her. As you said, she's not going out with a, a strong foot on her butt, though I suspect there's some ambitious folks in the party. Must be sort of starting to say, you know, it's time for us to get a, a kick at the cat at the top job there. Uh, it would be just a, a well-timed spot to, to step aside with grace and, and uh, let somebody new take over the, the reins. So I, I think it's a very believable scenario that she, she's going out this fall. Yeah. Uh, well, let's kind of talk about what life in the NDP might look like after her. Um, so my source here, uh, yeah, most of the, this part here is less juicy because a lot of it is obvious, although some, some, some names less obvious. Uh, the the would-be pretenders to the crown are that are kind of quietly organizing very gently. No one wants to organize too aggressively openly because the leader is within NDP circles. Rachel Notley's beloved. No one wants to be seen as bum rushing her out the door. That's not that's not what's happening. Uh, but names that are kind of quietly getting ready at least. Kathleen Ganley uh, from Calgary, uh, Infant Sabir, Calgary, uh, Shannon Phillips, Lethbridge. And then um, Rian Hoyle uh, and Sarah Hoffman from uh, from Edmonton, and Court Ellingson, who I think is Calgary. Um, so some of those names are new, newly elected people that are supposed to be kind of bigger names in the NDP. Maybe we'll learn more about them over the next little bit, but they're they're pretty quiet now. They're just sitting on the opposition benches and haven't uh, they haven't even had a question period to try and make a mark yet. These poor. Poor people just elected. They've like gone into the legislature for a day to elect a speaker and uh, be sworn in, and didn't even get to have a single day of combat on the on the floor of the legislature. Uh, uh, I bet if, if I'm betting for the NDP, I mean, uh, there's going to be different factions. There's going to be a more ideological faction. There's going to you know, hard left, and then there'll be a more pragmatic one that says like, "Well, we really want to be government, and it's Alberta, so you can't go full NDP." And then there'll be the party is no longer Edmonton. It, it's definitely Edmonton dominant, but it would be unfair to say it's just an, an Edmonton party now. They've got half the seats in Calgary. Um, how much emphasis, uh, if, if you're an NDP strategist, Corey, Corey's an NDP strategist, and uh, and they're they're uh, they're coming to you for advice. How much emphasis do you think they should put on getting a leader who's not from Edmonton? Quite a bit. Uh, if they want to win, I mean, it's not a big pickup. But they, they've got Edmonton in the bag. It's, it's the same circumstances, I said, you know, with, with the last election. They need to grab a handful more Calgary seats. They're not going to make rural inroads. But if they get a moderate leader from Calgary, it is, is critical to their chances if they really do want to form government in the next election cycle. I mean, it's not impossible with somebody from Edmonton, but they would greatly reduce their odds. They need somebody to really build the party here. I think that, um, but the split that we need to worry about is between what you refer to as the ideological, which I would actually call the nuthouse part of the NDP. The OG and the, NDP. And the blue collar NDP, which talks the talk, 
but actually is all about what's in the in the salary packet. BC has the same split in its NDP between the industrial sector, for which Mr. Horgan was a was a spokesman, and for the other ones who are just uh, crazy on the environment, crazy on the woke stuff, uh, crazy from our perspective, I guess I should say, uh, and, and have quite unrealistic view of how money is made, bills are paid, and those are the people who can drive a province into the in, into recession and into unemployment uh, quicker than anybody. We have both factions in the Alberta NDP. And while I quite agree with you, there's, if they were smart, they would be looking for somebody outside Edmonton. I wouldn't put it past them to find a doctrinaire socialist unconnected to reality and let them lead the party, and it wouldn't matter whether they came from Edmonton or Calgary. I think there's a few ways we could split the party. I mean, obviously, there's always geographic differences. Yep. The conservatives mm -hmm. have the same. Um, but splitting up the NDP, I, I think I'd try to put them maybe into more of rough thirds. There's the union activist core, which is the old NDP, um, even yep. though a lot of unionized, non-government unionized workers do not vote NDP. Bill McGowan for premier. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, for transport minister, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, if they take that clip and play it out of context, uh, <laughs> I'll um, just say, yeah. Uh, but you've got the kind of the union faction, um, the organized union faction, not necessarily union workers, but union organized organizers and whatnot. You've got the kind of eco green faction, and then. Uh, and this has become an increasingly, this last bit I think is an increasingly huge part of the left. It's always been, but more important lately in the NDP, I think made a lot of progress on it in the last election, particularly Calgary, which is urban professionals. People who have higher incomes, higher levels of formal education, um, that, uh, you know, having come through the university worlds, dealing with kind of higher, more polite society, feel obliged to be a bit, maybe a bit more woke, but then kind of wokeness runs at least runs very strongly through both kind of the eco green side and that urban professional side, less so through the union side. The un mm. actual unionized workers tend to be among the less least woke people I've ever met, yeah. short of farmers. Um, but yeah, I think you've kind of got those, those are kind of the broad factions I draw, but there's also a bunch of smaller ones in between. There's a bunch to mix. I mean, yeah, the champagne socialists are kind of what you're describing yeah. in that sense. And uh, uh, but those are also the ones more inclined to be pragmatists. So if you yeah. get two of those three acting together, that'll form the flavor of the party. If they can get the, the trade unions and that uh, you know pragmatic uh, but left-leaning group of professionals, you can get a, a type of party to get elected. As Nigel said, though, if the, the loony uh, core at the base gets somebody in there as, as leader and it moves in that direction, though, that's fine, but they're going to be in opposition for quite some time. Yeah. I think Shannon Phillips is someone to watch. Because, uh, you know, the NDP, like all parties, but the NDP, especially in Alberta, they're very suspicious of newcomers. Um, you know, have you paid your dues? Are you just here because the NDP is a big deal? Because, you know, after 2015, there was a bunch of liberals who came in. And a lot of the pragmatists in the NDP were like, ah, great, we're absorbing the liberals. Come on in to the big left progressive tent. But some of the new Democrats were like, 
we were enemies yesterday. We've, we, the NDP and liberals were blood enemies for a long time. You screwed us in 93, uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, how welcoming are they going to be to an outsider? Let's say, like say Nenshi. We view Nenshi as this lefty, moderate lefty, not totally loony, but kind of out there and blah, blah, blah. A lot of new Democrats I talk to, they don't uh, view him as the dream candidate that we might think. They think, ah, well, he hasn't been a party member. He hasn't paid his dues. He has not sold the socialist worker on the street corner, copy by copy to passers-by. Exactly. But someone who does have that stuff and is not from Edmonton is Shannon Phillips. She's a true believer. She used to work with, uh, was it Mike uh, Hudima? No, the crazy green, yeah, crazy yeah. Greenpeace extremist, um, and uh, while she's really tough on camera, she's actually fairly pleasant and personable. Believe it or not, just in person, she's actually fairly nice. Um, but she she's got you know the base. The base of the NDP likes her. She's hardcore left green, but she's not from Edmonton. She's from Lethbridge, and Lethbridge on paper, I mean. That's more country than Calgary. Well, and that's it. They, and they've got a lot of questions to answer. And that's why the scenario you're talking about, it's going to be an important leadership race if and when it happens. And if it doesn't have the former leader in there stirring with it or meddling with it, because the party's going to have to find itself. They have a few paths to take and, and a few roots. And uh, Notley is a smart pragmatist. So if she cares for the party, yeah, she'll step aside and let them. I think our next office pool is going to be for the NDP leadership. <laughs> I'm going to put my early bet right now without knowing who the candidates are, my early bet. So, like, I should get the best odds for it because I don't even know who's going to be playing on the field. But I'm putting Shannon Phillips as next leader of the NDP. You heard it here first. <laughs> Speaking of crazy green eco-nut stuff, uh, actually, I'm coming right back to Gil, uh, Gilbo. Gilbo, whatever we call him. Um, Ottawa's ban on usable compostable bags. Uh, so I was saying at the top of the show, those of you outside of Alberta might not even know what we're talking about. It's an Alberta company, Calgary-based company that did this. Ottawa says, you know, we're going to ban single-use plastics, including plastic bags at the grocery store that we love. And uh, this Calgary company comes up with compostable bags that feel like plastic. Like they're almost, like they tear a little easier than the plastic bags, but they're they're decent. Even me. I was like, yeah, I'm okay with these. This is fine. But they must be too good because Ottawa is banning them with plastic bags. I haven't known what to call these. I finally came up with a name for them today because compostable plastic bags. Well, they're not plastic. They just, they're just almost as good as plastic. Do we call them just compostable bags? Well, there's a lot of compostable bags, including the crappy paper bags that we used to be told to stop using because we're killing trees. Um, so I'm just calling them usable plastic bags, uh, usable compostable bags. Or maybe we'll call them non-crap compostable bags. Either way, Ottawa is banning them. And they haven't really given much of a reason why saying no exceptions to plastic-like products. And uh, I'll start with you, Corey. We were saying before we were talking uh, off the air, um, Ottawa could have claimed this as a great victory, actually, because they could have claimed, and I would have had to grit my teeth and grudgingly admit they were right, that by saying we're banning plastic bags at the grocery store, they forced and spurred 
innovation that created this incredible new product that has the potential to be a global leader in reducing single-use plastics. A whole new Canadian product. Yeah. Ottawa could have said, we did that because, because our plastic bags ban, we forced the innovation that created this product. Instead, they've taken the opposite approach and said, no, stop your damned innovation. Those plastic bags are too convenient and enjoyable for a shopper's experience. We're banning them too. What? I legitimately, I'm not just playing flummoxed. I'm not just playing Mr. Magoo. I don't understand why they're banning it. Uh, Can you part of it? You got to go best back. Mind to, meld you got to go back to why they're banning plastic bags in the first place. As a percentage of landfill use or actual pollution, those thin microplastic bags next to nothing. They were not a large part of the problem. The problem with them is they're visible. When they get loose, they get stuck on the fence. They go tumbling across the highway. They look ugly. You mm -hmm. see them. That's what's, this is virtue signaling. This isn't about fixing the environment. This is a control well, I, We all hate seeing them when they get stuck on yeah. a fence or a tree. That and is ugly. Even the compostable ones will stick on the tree and get stuck on the fence. So uh, the next year they'll have degraded and be gone. Yeah. But they'll have been seen. So I think that's part of it. But the damage they've done, as you said, this could have been such a win. I mean, it was great. They spurred innovation. Now they've done the opposite. They've said, don't even try. We'll just keep moving the goalposts. Just ban whatever we're banning, and, and there's no substitute. It's it's ridiculous, and it's really exposed them for the, the intractable ideologues they are. You can't reason with them. Um, Nigel, I, I'm just at a loss for words. I don't know why they're doing this. I don't get it. Is it ideology, or is it just they... I, I try to assume the best of motives in people, even if they're bad motives. I try to assume be the most charitable I can, but I've had a hard time empathizing in this case about what they're thinking. The best I can come up with, and I'm probably wrong, the best I can come up with is that, kind of like COVID, even when we knew the masks did nothing, the government thought it was important that we wear masks because it was a sign of social solidarity, that you're demonstrating that we're in this together. It's now a social activity. And that Banning plastic bags, even compostable bags that just have the convenience and feel of plastic, it'll make us feel better about ourselves because it's such a pain in the ass to carry the groceries to and from the truck anymore from the grocery store into the house. That this is an exercise in social solidarity. That's the best I can come up with, but even that doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, uh, you know, it's not really a, an exercise in social solidarity when you don't have the, the, the product in your hand. Um, I have to ask, I wonder whether these things would be banned if they were being made in Stephen Gilbo's writing. That is a question. They happen to be made in Calgary, which is an issue. I noticed that. But I will also say that for once, this is an aspect of politics that I can afford to ignore. My wife takes bags with her. She takes the you know, these plastic ones that they've been giving away, they've used them three dozen times. You take a shopping bag. I don't really care whether whether they offer me paper bags or, or uh, plastic bags. She's got a bag with her. End of problem. Maybe it's not such a big deal. I can't do it. You can't do it? No, I can't do it. Uh, for two reasons. One, I'm way too forgetful and disorganized. Two, because Ottawa wants me to do it. Ah. I can't do it. Because so another intractable idea. Ah. So like, even, 
Even if. Did you hear him say he was organized? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have managed to, by sheer force of will, I've made myself organized to run this company. But it takes me to my breaking point every day. I've only got so many bits of RAM in my computer and taking cloth reusable bags to the grocery store is just, it's beyond my capacity, can't do it. Uh, well, we're gonna have to wrap up there, we're out of time. But I wanna leave all of you, listeners, viewers, the little idea for a little, little micro-anarchy, a little sliver of civil disobedience. I believe in recycling, although I know there's a bunch of issues, mostly just gets packaged and sits in a warehouse somewhere until we can ship it overseas to get recycled in a decade or two. But in general, I believe in recycling. I believe in compost. I've been composting long before some damn city politicians made me pay a bunch of money for a green cart in front of my house. I've been recycling for generations. Like I just grew up, uh, sorry, I've been composting for generations. Free dirt, who doesn't like free dirt for your garden? I believe in these things but I'm more or less stopping now. Take Until Ottawa reverses its ban on good compostable grocery bags, I encourage you on garbage day, take some compost, put it in the garbage. Take some recycle, put it in the garbage. Put a little garbage over top so the garbage man and the garbage bureaucrats can't see it because they're not gonna rifle through it to the bottom. Start putting your compost and your recycle in the garbage can, temporarily, hopefully, until Ottawa reverses this madness. Uh, I still take paper straws and then I put them straight, no, but I put them in the garbage. When I go to a restaurant, I bring my plastic straw with me. And uh, yeah, I know I sound insane. I probably am a little crazy, but I bring a plastic straw with me, but I still accept the paper straw so I can put it in the garbage. Little. Little micro acts of anarchy. Flag of revolution <laughs> is hoisted aloft. Yes. Don't tread on me, eh? Uh, bold act of revolution here, Come eh? and get it. My come, garbage, though. Come is. and take it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, that's enough for now. Uh, before we let you go, though, if you're not yet a member of the Western Standard, go to westernstandard.news right now and become a member today. It's only $10 a month or $100 a year. We need you to support the work we do. The Western Standard is Western Canada's largest online news organization now and uh, by far uh, leading in Alberta. Uh, we need your support. We are not taking the federal government's media bailouts. They are passing legislation, uh, have passed legislation censoring us from Facebook and from Google. We need your support. So make sure you get on there, become a member, support the work we do so that we can support you. Thank you very much for joining us today and God bless.